0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Hear now God's Word. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. In 1995... Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company published a book that I wrote titled, The Children of the Promise, The Biblical Case for Infant Baptism. That book is still in print and has sold over 20,000 copies. And while I was and am surprised, I can say that the writing and the publication of that book has a direct bearing on the existence of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church as well as the fact that I've been your pastor for over 19 years. Therefore, in this series of sermons on foundations, as we are remembering who we are and where we have come from as a church, our topic today, which was covered in chapter 2 of that book, has played a central role in our existence. Perhaps you've heard people say, We are New Testament Christians, and by that they mean that their faith is built upon a portion of the Bible that we call the New Testament. And of course, we love the New Testament, and we believe every word of it. Nevertheless, we are not limited by the New Testament. We would say we are whole Bible Christians. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks in regard to the Bible, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer it gives is the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And so as we look back... Remembering our foundations, in order to look forward, I will present to you this morning material which is, was and is foundational to how we understand and interpret the Bible. This is more of a Bible study this morning, or to think about how we study the Bible, and there's much more, of course, that can be said, but this is foundational It can't be overemphasized how important our basic interpretive principle is when it comes to our understanding and applying Scripture. This is a pivotal point on which the discussion, say, of baptism, or for that matter, any other doctrine in the Bible, will turn. In fact, uh, until two people come to some basic agreement about how the Scriptures are to be interpreted It is unlikely that they will agree on other matters, including subjects like baptism or eschatology or any number of others, really all the subjects. Our basic interpretive foundations have everything to do with the conclusions that we draw. Where we start has everything to do with where we end up. To illustrate this important point, consider how two people would settle a dispute. Imagine that you and I were going to, we had a dispute, or we wanted to know how big this room is. It's a a rectangle, we'll go ahead and include these storage rooms here, and we're going to try to determine how big the room is. You have a stick and I have a stick, we both call them yardsticks, but imagine that they're actually different lengths. How long will it take us to agree on the size of the room? We'll never agree, right? We're using a different standard. We have to have a unified standard if we're going to arrive at a unified answer. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. By what standard? How, how are we going to go about interpreting the Bible? How are we going to know what it means? And so the disagreement over which standard of measurement is going to be used has to first be settled. Likewise, our rules of interpretation have to be established and agreed upon if we're going to settle doctrinal disputes. And so have you considered what method you use in interpreting the Bible? You see, what, what principle guides you in this most important task, or what principles? Is there a basic discontinuity from Old to New Testament, or is there a basic Continuity. Are they, is this a unified thing or is it divided in some way? To use common theological term, terms, I would ask, are you dispensational or are you covenantal in your understanding of how to view the Bible? What I'd like to do this morning is demonstrate that the covenantal interpretive principle of continuity is, provides the only consistent and biblical method for interpreting the Bible. And so chapter 2 of my book begins with another illustration that helps us see how these two approaches of continuity or discontinuity might differ. So let me just read this illustration. Ken Jackson and Bill York are both in the lumber business. Mr. Jackson owns a lumber mill and he supplies Mr. York with lumber for his retail building supply business. The two men began doing business with each other in 1942, and when they drew up a contract and agreed on many details that would govern their business relationship, details such as markup, terms of payment, return policy, discounts, credit, method of shipment, penalties, etc. All of those were included in that agreement. By 1965, however, new opportunities presented themselves. Mr. York wanted to vastly expand his retail business into a national franchise. He went to talk to Mr. Jackson about supplying his stores with lumber. Both men realized their contract would have to be changed in order to address the new business circumstances. So Bill says, Ken, we've had a great business relationship over the years. I'm planning to expand my retail operation to cover the entire country. Would you be interested in expanding your mill in order to supply my stores? Ken says, it sounds like a great opportunity for both of us. Other than needing more capital, what else will this arrangement involve? And so Bill says, our contract has worked very well for both of us over the past Uh, 23 years, but we'll need to change it to address the new areas that such an expansion will involve. So Ken says, what changes do you have in mind? Bill says, well, I've looked into it, and one area that we'll need to address is the method of shipment. We'll need to change it from rail car to motor freight. There's no question motor freight would save both of us time and money. There are several other matters that we need to consider changing as well. And Ken says, well, I'm all for that. How do we go about that? Do we tear up our old contract and start over with a new one? Bill says, no, that won't be necessary. We can simply amend or update our old contract by addressing the particular areas that we want to change. Only those areas covered in the amendment will be affected. The rest of the old contract will remain remain valid. We just need to sign the amendments, and the old contract will be updated. Ken says, that makes sense. There's no point in starting completely over, since our old contract has worked fine for us this far. I'll have my attorney contact your attorney, and they can hammer out the details of the needed changes. And when they get all the bugs out, we'll set up a time when we can both sign it. And Bill said that sounds good to him.
1: So, the
0: fundamental question is whether there is a basic continuity or discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. To put it in simpler terms, did the New Testament replace the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament just become completely obsolete and we threw it out because now we have a new one? one, Did the New One replace the Old One or did the New One expand the Old One, build on the Old One? still connected to the old one. So that it's one book, it's now expanding and addressing new things. And so by the term continuity and discontinuity, I refer to the degree to which the Old Testament continues in an an uninterrupted way to be valid or to have application in the New Testament. How we answer this question will inevitably lead, if we're consistent to specific conclusions on a host of issues. It's like getting the button, the first button in the right buttonhole. Everything that follows is going to, to matter. For example, the abiding validity of the ethical demands of the Old Testament. Do those still apply to us or not? Should we even be reading the Old Testament? And if so, should we read it with the idea that it has the authority to tell us what to do or not do? How about the nature of God's relationship with man or eschatology and his future things or baptism or the nature of the church? We all have some method of interpreting the Bible, though our approach might not be well thought out and it might not even be consistent. Each interpretive system, though, has to be tested to see if it is both biblically derived, did it come from the Bible, is that where we got our system? What does the Bible say about how to interpret the Bible? And is it internally consistent? When methods of interpreting Scripture are fabricated artificially, then the Bible is made to fit arbitrary constructs or I come up with my own idea and my own system, and then I try to start making the Bible fit it. When methods of interpreting the Scripture are fabricated artificially, then we get this uh, this forced uh, situation. Usually, then we need a lot of other people to help us understand what the Bible says. While such system, some kind of a system is unavoidable, they must not just be arbitrary. Our system of interpretation has to come, here's the point, from the Bible itself. What does the Bible say about how to handle the Bible? Since the Bible is our ultimate authority and our interpretive, therefore our interpretive system has to flow from the revelation of God as found in the Old and New Testaments. It has to grow out of Scripture, not be forced onto Scripture. And so our opening story of Ken and Bill illustrates two major systems of interpretation, the dispensational and the covenantal methods. So let me say something about those terms. I know today is a bit more of a theological sermon, but most of you, maybe not everyone, are familiar with these terms to some degree. Dispensationalism, which is far more than eschatology, sometimes we hear dispensationalism and we think about the second coming of Jesus, it certainly addresses that, and the issue we're talking about has tremendous implications on how we understand the future. But uh, dispensationalism, dispensationalism has been a major influence in American Christianity for about 150 years, And most of us have been heavily influenced by it, whether we know it or not. A dispensation is simply, that that word simply refers to a period of time. The dispensational method of biblical interpretation holds that there is much variety and change from one biblical period of time to another. Obviously between the Old and the New Testament, but also other portions of time are broken up as well. On the other hand, covenant theology emphasizes that God relates to men by way of covenants or agreements or relationships if you will. God has a single comprehensive plan of redemption that extends from Genesis to Revelation. Not not several different plans, not plan A, plan B, plan C, but one plan. This plan is called, in theology, the covenant of grace. The covenantal method of biblical interpretation maintains that God has dealt with men in the same fundamental way throughout history. He dealt with Adam after he fell in the same way he deals with us, fundamentally. Fundamentally. The dispensational method sees a basic discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants or Testaments, whereas the covenantal method sees a basic continuity between the Old and the New. In our story, when Ken asked about the possibility of tearing up the old contract that he had with Bill, he was expressing the idea of discontinuity, the dispensational method. Under this interpretation, the new contract... Might contain some of the same provisions and stipulations that the old contract had, but these provisions and stipulations are only valid because the new contract has spelled them out in a new way. Any parallels between the old contract and the new contract are coincidental and not directly related. Now, Bill took a different approach. He pointed out that such a radical break wasn't necessary. He recommended a method that emphasized continuity, what we're calling in theology the covenantal method. There was no need to cancel the old contract that was still valid and good. The parties only needed to amend or update the old contract, making it current and renewing it to address new circumstances. Any new conditions in the amendment superseded all former conditions in the contract addressing the same issue. All matters addressed in the old contract remain unchanged and valid, that is, unless God said otherwise. Let me give you the, the most obvious, and the biggest uh, example of this in the Bible is in the Old Testament we have all kind of ceremonial laws, right? We have... The tabernacle and the temple, we have priesthood, we have all the sacrifices, and they go in, the Bible, Old Testament goes into great detail about all the sacrifices. We get to the New Testament, and Paul says, You know what? All of that was a shadow, all of that was a tutor to lead us to Christ. All of that was intended to point us to Jesus. Who did what? Well, He is the tabernacle or the temple. He is the the high priest who lives forever. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He's the greater of all of those, so we don't need that anymore. We have Him. It's It's not that a sacrifice isn't necessary. It's not that a mediator isn't necessary. It's that we have a better mediator and a better sacrifice and a better temple in Him. So, in that sense, even we would say the, requir- the Old Testament hasn't changed its requirements, it just meets them in a greater way. So, the, the book of Hebrews argues why would you want to go back to sacrificing animals when you have Jesus? That's ridiculous. Why, why would you want to go back to elementary school when you've got a PhD? All that's obsolete. We don't need that anymore because we have something better, but it fundamentally addresses the same issue. Thou shalt not steal, still applies. Nothing changed. A great deal of what the Old Testament says still applies, unchanged. But some things change, but God is the one that changed them. He addresses it very specifically so we know exactly which things have been changed. So the Reformed or Covenantal method of interpretation sees this basic continuity between Old and New Testaments with the New flowing out of the Old and building on its foundation. The New Testament offers a greater, expanded revelation of God and His redemptive work, but it does not arbitrarily do away with the Old Testament and start all over. I want to demonstrate that from Scripture. We even find explicit admonition in the New Testament... In fact, I want to argue that if we just start with the New Testament and see what the New Testament says, the New Testament is going to tell us to read our Old Testament. It's going to uh, we, we find explicit admonition for believers to rely on the authority of the Old Testament. When Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, what was he referring to when he said that? To the Old Testament. There wasn't a New Testament. Jesus was unequivocal about the fact that his ministry in no way invalidated the Old Testament. We just read that as our text. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. And somebody said, well, what does fulfill mean? Well, I don't care what it means. It can mean whatever you want it to mean as long as it doesn't mean abolish. Right? The Bereans were commended by Paul, he said, for examining the Scriptures. Which Scriptures? Old Testament. That's all they had. Daily, to see whether these things were so. What things? The things Paul was saying. The Apostle Paul. So they were checking Paul out by reading their Old Testament to see if what he was saying, this new stuff, matched what was in the Old Testament. Paul refers to the Old Testament when he says in Romans fifteen four, For whatever was written in earlier times, Old Testament, was written for our instruction, New Testament. 1 Corinthians ten 11, we're told, Now these things happened to them, that is the children of Israel, to them as an example, and they were written, Old Testament, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come new testament again we read approvingly of the new covenant use of the old testament scriptures in 2 Timothy 3:15 through 17 where he says to Timothy Timothy from the time you were a nursing baby from childhood you have known the sacred writings which ones old testament which are able to give make give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ because the old testament is about Jesus Christ all scripture the time Paul wrote this that was the old testament all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine reproof correction and instruction in righteousness That the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Besides these passages, Christ and the writers of the New Testament repeatedly quote from, from and apply the Old Testament scriptures to New Testament believers. The New Testament does not set aside the Old Testament. It relies on, it emphasizes the, the continued validity of the Old Testament for God's people under the New Covenant. Both the Old and New Testaments interpret one another. The Reformed principle known as the analogy of faith, that is that Scripture interprets Scripture, is our guiding interpretive principle, and it emphasizes the unity of Scripture while allowing for some change where there is new biblical revelation. According to covenant theology the teaching and pra- teachings and practices of the Old Testament are still valid and required for believers in the new covenant era unless unless God has revealed in scripture some change in the use form or application of his previous revelation as we already mentioned for example the ceremonial laws God alone may exercise the prerogative to amend His Word. In other words, Christians may not arbitrarily declare any portion of God's Word, including any portion of the Old Testament, invalid. Any claim for change between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant must be validated by further revelation of God as found in the Scriptures themselves. Both the Old and New Testaments are to direct the belief and the practice of the New Covenant believers. The dispensational method of interpretation, again, does something very different. It emphasizes the discontinuity between the Old and New. According to this view, while the New Testament often draws principles from the Old Testament... It, nevertheless, it is, nevertheless, a, the New Testament is a complete replacement of the Old Testament, thus rendering the Old invalid, not authoritative. The New Covenant believer, starting according to this view, his starting point is the New Testament, distinct and separate from the Old, and therefore the believer derives all his understanding of the Christian faith from the New Testament alone. The only things carried over from the Old Testament are those things which are, according to this view, explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Any other Old Testament teaching is not applicable to the New Testament believer. The New Testament, excuse me, the dispensational method of interpretation then has divided the Bible into two separate books. These are often portrayed as being substantially different, if not outright, in outright opposition to one another. References are sometimes made to the God of the Old Testament being in some way different from the God of the New Testament. Such a dividing of the Bible speaks against the essential unchangeableness of, and unity of God. R.J. Rushdooney identifies some of the roots of this historical development in 18th and 19th century America. He writes, Whereas earlier the Puritans had seen the whole Bible as the binding word of God, now, as J. Flegelman has noted in Prodigals and Pilgrims, uh, quote, the Bible was slowly becoming identified with the New Testament alone, end quote, Russ Dooney continues, from 1777 to 1800, there were only 33 American editions of the whole Bible, but nearly 80 separate printings of the New Testament. This was a break with the Puritan love for the whole Word of God. The Bible was now seen as a divided book, and by implication, God was divided and in conflict with himself. God had one plan of salvation for the Jews and another for the Christians. The believer in his devotional life was encouraged to concentrate on the New Testament and perhaps the Psalms. Alexander Campbell attacked the law and called for, quote, New Testament Christianity. Such thinking was seeping into all churches, although Southern Presbyterians resisted it until 1869. The church was abandoning the Bible of Jesus Christ. Because the other churches stressed the continuity between circumcision and infant baptism, the Baptists attacked the validity of this continuity by denying the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Instead of a renewed covenant in Christ... With a new Israel, a new chosen people, the Baptist insisted on two covenants of differing characteristics. And so, to emphasize the importance of this foundation, this continuity, so this dividing of the Bible and the covenants of God is unwarranted. The Bible doesn't say to do that. We might as well sever a tree from its roots and expect it to survive. The Old and the New Testaments are tied together and are interdependent. The Old Testament needs the New Testament, and the New Testament needs the Old Testament to be properly interpreted and understood. No matter where we start in our study of a biblical doctrine, we must consider it in the light of the entire Bible. We must reject any demand that we begin our study of any doctrine with the New Testament alone. Now, this is true for two important reasons. First, the New Testament can be interpreted properly only only in the context of the Old, and I want to illustrate that. Both the Old Testament text itself and the culture it produced provides the foundation for understanding how those who first received the New Testament would have understood its teaching. God has preserved an inspired written record of both the history of redemption as well as the historical experiences of his people. These are not minor points that may be overlooked or brushed aside if we are to come to a right understanding of any doctrine. No facts or verse of scripture is isolated from any other facts. They are all related and they all have impact on one another. Therefore, we may not rush to the New Testament and presume that we have all that we need, all the information necessary to to, uh, reach an accurate conclusion about any doctrine. A second reason why we should not start with the New Testament is that the doctrines of the New Testament have their roots in the Old Testament. When we read Galatians 3.29 that we are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise, we are immediately driven to Genesis, if we're going to understand what that means. When we read Philippians 3.3, 3, that we are the true circumcision, we must go to the Old Testament to discover what circumcision was and what function it performed. When we read in Romans 15:8 that Christ came to confirm the promises given to the fathers, or in Ephesians 2:12 that the Gentiles were excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, it is only in the Old Testament that we discover the foundation of these teachings. How did the Jews understand the baptism of John in John 3:25? What were the various baptisms that were mentioned in Hebrews 10? Why was circumcision of the heart in Colossians 2, 11, and 12 represented by baptism? What represented circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament? It would be useless to try to answer these basic questions without turning to the Old Testament. The New Testament similarly drives us immediately to the Old Testament when we try to understand the doctrines of creation, sin, redemption, the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement, the priesthood, the eldership, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, marriage, divorce, households, covenants, judgment, heaven, and much, much more. In a letter to his son in 1850, we see an example of how C.C. C. Jones, who was a minister, applied this principle of biblical interpretation to the question of capital punishment. The same principle of continuity must be brought to bear on all other doctrinal questions. And so here is the advice that Reverend Jones wrote to his son. Uh, who was having a, an interaction with one of his friends. So here's his letter. The fallacy of your young friend on the capital punishment question so far as the scriptures are concerned lies in setting the New Testament over and above the Old where both are equally the word of God, equally authoritative and from one per- perfect and form one perfect revelation. One perfect rule of faith and practice. They are not in any respect antagonistic, but consonant and mutually support the one, uh, the one, the other. Nothing is set aside in the Old Testament in and by the new, except for the types and shadows and ceremonial laws, all of which find their fulfillment in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and expire, as the lawyers would say, by the statute of their own limitations. But all the laws of God that embody our duties to God and men, whether socially or civilly, remain ever in force. These laws are recognized in the New Testament, but are not repeated in extensio, in all their fullness, there being no necessity to do so. The New Testament is built up out of and upon the old and is not contrary to it in anything whatever. It ever recognizes and then supports the old. Another fallacy of your young friend is that we are not bound to do anything but what we are distinctly commanded in so many words by the New Testament to do. You perceive at once that this principle cannot be admitted without involving Uh, Us In many difficulties, this fallacy grows out of the first and falls with it. All that is necessary is for the New Testament to acknowledge the old and the two be united in one perfect revelation. Neither is complete without the other. I need not proceed any further. You can manage the controversy now, I think, with this little help. The dispensational method of isolating the New Testament from the Old Testament as though we may determine any doctrine in its proper relation to redemptive history with the New Testament alone, let me say this, is dangerous. It is misguided, including its eschatology. The problem with this dispensational method is not so much that it starts with the New Testament. Since the New Testament immediately points us to the Old Testament. The real problem posed by this method is that it not only wants to start with the New Testament, but it wants to stop with the New Testament and settle the issue with the New Testament alone. We must not forget that all Scripture, including the Old Testament, is profitable for doctrine. Starting and ending with the whole Bible is the only sure way to arrive at sound doctrinal positions. And that's why we are whole Bible Christians. The dispensational system doesn't adequately account for the unity of the Bible or God. Given the unchangeable character of God, there can be no question about the principle of continuity in His revelation and what He reveals. Continuity and unity should be presumed over discontinuity. Who but God alone may presume to change what God has said. When it comes to Scripture, only God is permitted to say what is in fact new about the New Covenant. As Dr. Greg Bonson explained, everything God has said should be that by which man lives, not simply those things which God has spoken twice and in the right places. We must live by every Scripture unless God explains otherwise. This basic unity of God and His revelation is seen in the fact that God has, from the beginning, dealt with humanity in terms of redemptive covenants. God has had one plan from the start to redeem sinners. He has pursued and brought that plan to pass in a smooth, unfolding, and unbroken fashion. God has continuously unfolded through more and more revelation. His redemptive plan for man and the world. And so, this issue must be settled in our minds if we are to understand and apply the Bible properly to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible so that we might read the record of your redemptive work for all of your people We are thankful for its history, and for its instruction, and for how it is all a tutor to lead us to Christ. Help us to love it, to read it, to study it, so that we might rightly comprehend it, and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, we have a great example of how the Old Testament is useful and enables us to understand this sacrament. 1 Corinthians 11 is dealing with the abuse of the Lord's Supper at the church at Corinth, and so Paul has argued now in chapter 10. Chapter 11 is dealing with the abuse of the Lord's Supper, but in chapter 10, leading up to his argument here, he has argued that the same kind of abuse, same kind of thing, took place in the Old Testament. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, we read, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written, Old Testament, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. New Testament. So all the children of Israel ate the same spiritual food, including their children, by the way. But some of them, the adults, abused that spiritual blessing and turned it into carnal indulgence. As a result, God judged them severely. Likewise, in chapter 11, Paul applies this to those who were abusing the Lord's Supper... In a similar fashion, and here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 11:29 29-30, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning, not discerning the Lord's body, and for this reason, just like all those that dropped in the wilderness, for that reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have died. Now, we can, there's a lot more to be said here, but I just want to illustrate a perfect example of how the apostles took the Old Testament, drew the lessons from it, applied it right here, and as we come to the table, we have that understanding ourselves. So let us come before the Lord now with sincere hearts to join together as one body in Christ and together to eat this meal before the Lord. Give us delight in your word, O God. May we eagerly search it, love it, long to keep it, seek it with all our hearts uh, uh, for for God who is revealed there, guard our lives according to it, lay it up in our hearts, judge all the ideas of men by it, and convey its teaching to others, longing for them to know it and obey it. Cleanse us from rationalizations, excuses, and half-hearted obedience. Teach us to meditate upon Your Word day and night. Let it be our food and drink. Now we pray, Father, that You would bless Your people and comfort us with Your Word and by Your Holy Spirit. Bless now our feast and our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify You completely and may Your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Amen.